The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. In the course of reading a book or watching a movie, it's only natural to find yourself identifying with the main character. You take on something of that protagonist and you put yourself in their shoes and you experience what they're experiencing on just a small level. This is why you cheer for Frodo as he's carrying that ring to Mordor to to throw that thing in Mount Doom. And, And that's why you feel the weight of it as you see the weight of it on him. This is why you cry alongside of Simba when Mufasa dies, and you feel satisfaction when he conquers Scar and takes his rightful place as king. There's a reason that we associate and affiliate with those characters. And we could examine anything from Jurassic Park to Schindler's List, and you and I naturally put ourselves in the shoes of the good guy, of the hero. We naturally identify and associate ourselves with that main character. In fact, Roger Ebert, who is perhaps the most famous movie critic who has ever lived, said it this way. He said, we can't help identifying with a protagonist. It is coded into our movie-going DNA. Now, although we're not watching a film today, we are speaking about the Word of God, and as we read it, we have a tendency to do the exact same thing. We have a tendency, as we come to the Scripture, to see the protagonist and to say, that is representative of me. But this morning, I'm going to attempt to help you fight your natural instinct because it is only natural for you to read about Joseph and think that he represents you. But you are not Joseph in this story, and neither am I. You and I are not the hero. We are not supposed to identify with the main character that gets everything right. However, you are supposed to find yourself present on these pages. You are represented here. You and I find ourselves being described not by Joseph, rather as we read about Joseph's brothers. And the more that I study these chapters, this last section of Genesis, the more I am convinced that the Holy Spirit inspired this portion of Genesis to continue the format of juxtaposing and contrasting two specific brothers. In this case, Joseph and Judah. This pattern first emerged with Cain and Abel. And then it continued with Isaac and Ishmael, and then next with Jacob and Esau. And all of those stories have this in common. One brother was blessed by God, while the other one departed the family of God. Cain was exiled away from the face of God for killing his brother. Ishmael was sent away with his mother. Esau, having gained all of the goods that he wanted from the world, left God in the dust, and he pursued his own path. But our story today has a very different ending than all of the rest of the comparisons of these brothers. If the pattern continued in an identical way, Joseph would be blessed by God to carry on the family line, and the rest of the brothers would be then relegated to the scrap heap of history. But instead, the story of Joseph compares and contrasts Joseph and his brother Judah. He is our window into the story. You are Judah. But Judah does not end up like Cain. He does not end up like Ishmael. He does not end up like Esau. In fact, we will see even later in the summer that Judah is the child who will be the one who carries on the line of the Messiah. The question is this. What differentiates Judah and his brothers 
from the three wicked brothers that I mentioned just a moment ago. Why does God choose to bless these 12 sons and not just Joseph? Last week, we already examined this question from the angle that we observed from God's side, that God has already set his affection on these men, even despite themselves. And this is clearly displayed through Joseph as he sought their good by testing them. But this sermon today will be from the opposite side of the coin as we see how uh, Judah is primarily our perspective of the human angle of what is taking place in this story. Our sermon this morning is intentionally without any outline or structure. We are simply going to walk through the story of Judah together. But the flow and the direction is something like this. First, we are going to be reminded of the character and the history of Judah And then we will see how God is is working to break him down to the point of repentance. And finally, we will see how this text gives us a clear picture of what our repentance should look like as we see that ultimately even our repentance is due to the grace of God alone. First, let's take a step back and remember what's happened with Judah up to this point in the story. When we first began this summer in Genesis chapter 37, we saw that Joseph had, a, had brought a bad report about his brothers. This includes Judah. Although the text is not clear and we cannot be certain exactly what the bad report included and what exactly the sinful activity was, commentators lean in the direction of it, including some kind of sexual sin, probably prostitution, which we see falls in line with his character as we look at his life throughout the course of the rest of the chapters. Joseph then shared the details of his dream with his brothers, and they became furious with him. They are not rejoicing with those who rejoice. His dreams indicated that the brothers would bow down before Joseph, and Judah, along with the rest, became indignant, and he hated Joseph all the more, so much so that he could not even speak to his brother. The first time that we actually hear Judah speaking in the Bible is when Joseph has been captured by his brothers and he has been thrown into a pit. And it is then that Judah speaks up and he says, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. Is he really interested in protecting his brother? No, just a second ago, he was interested in killing his brother. But then he sees an opportunity to gain some income, and then his direction changed. From the outset, Judah is portrayed like a Judas-like figure. He was willing to sell off righteous Joseph for the price of a slave. He seems to have no moral compass whatsoever. He simply does whatever his heart desires. And this is a fitting description of every human heart before knowing Christ. Even the slightest indication that God wants us to submit to his plan causes us to rebel and to recoil, just like when Judah heard about the dreams. I will not have that man to rule over me. So we say of Christ, I don't want God's rules to govern my life. So what do we do? We race toward hell, sinning in all the ways that we think will satisfy us, doing whatever makes us feel good in the moment. Joseph brought a bad report about Judah, What kind of report would be brought to God about us? Before you were saved, the report would include a litany of transgressions from every category under the sun. In Philippians chapter 319, Paul describes unbelievers this way. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set as in being stuck on earthly things. 
Before knowing Christ, we are controlled by our impulses, as we read there. We are pursuing joy in all of the wrong places. For Judah, it was a love of money. He was more interested in a few silver coins than reconciling with his brother. Do you know how crazy this is? Do you realize that they received 20 silver coins for their brother? There are 10 guys there. They have to divide the money 10 ways. That means he sold his brother for two measly silver shekels. But his love of money was greater than his love of brother. And his desire and taste for revenge was greater than his desire for reconciliation. As you examine your life before Christ and what you were like before you came to know him, remember that you were just like this. Maybe you're with us this morning and you actually don't know Christ at this time. Maybe you have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus. I just want you to see that your life is not unlike Judah. If you are not in Christ, you are simply doing whatever your heart desires. And the result is always rebellion against God. It's unlikely that you've sold a family member into slavery. I don't think anybody here has done that. But the word of God teaches us that a single offense, one lie, one abusive statement to a friend or an enemy, one, one thought of wickedness in your own mind is enough to separate you from God under his wrath forever. And each and every time we reject God's commands and we crown ourselves king of our own lives, we're acting in the same spirit of Judah in this early stage of his life. As soon as Judah finished the deed of convincing his father that Joseph was dead, Genesis 38 tells us that he leaves and he goes to another part of Canaan. He thinks that he's gotten away with it. He thinks that now he is off scot-free. My brother is gone. Now I am going to go live however I want. He thinks that all of that is behind him. So now he seems to act exactly like we saw Esau acting in previous chapters. He leaves the family of God behind and he strikes out on his own. In the meantime, he befriends Hira the Adulamite and marries Shua the Canaanite. In other words, he surrounds himself with people that are only going to cheer on his rebellion. He was told in no uncertain terms, you must not marry one of those Canaanite women. Yet he does. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And we see that to be true in the life of Judah as he continues on in sin, only being helped by his friends. I get by with a little help from my friends. Without detailing the story again, Judah has three sons. Eventually, he denies the right of marriage to his daughter-in-law, to his third son, thereby making her a helpless widow and sinning against her. And then, thinking that she was a cult prostitute, he impregnates her and leaves her with his staff and his signet ring and his cord. These were functionally his passport and his driver's license and his social security card. And when word came to him that his daughter-in-law was pregnant out of wedlock, he was quick to cry out, Put her to death. He required that she be burned. But when she arrived, she carried with her his identification cards and said, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. This is the first time we see a recognition in Judah that he is unrighteous. Public humiliation has stimulated this form of self-examination in his life, whereby he calls out, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila. 
Directly after this takes place, Judah returns to his family, and because of the timeline that we have here in the book of Genesis, we know from the text it is likely Judah spent a very short period of time with his family again before the famine struck. So the entirety of the time that Joseph is in Egypt, Judah is away in another part of Canaan with his family, creating his own family away from his father. I wonder what was going through Judah's head when he was making his way south on the trade route to Egypt. As he got on that donkey and he began traveling in that direction, was he wondering about the fate of his brother? I wonder if we're going to see Joseph on the side of the road, working, digging a ditch. Was he wondering about what he had said to his father? I wonder if we've really covered our tracks well enough. Was Joseph even a matter of discussion between the brothers as they rode their donkeys there? Did they talk about what they had done? I doubt it. I think it's more likely that they had made a pact never to speak about what happened ever again. But as the events that we read about this morning unfold, it is clear that Joseph is on all of their minds as they travel to Egypt. Little do they know that their brother is the one standing right before them, and they are now bowing down before the one that they have spurned. And Joseph tests his brothers, and now consider how these tests are seen from the position of Judah. Chapter 42, verse 7 says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Then he accused them of being spies, and he makes them a deal. In verses 18 through 20, we see the deal. It says, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the Uh, for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Now from Joseph's side, he wanted to be certain that his brother Benjamin was still alive. That is why it is no accident that he decides he's going to keep one. But it is also no accident that he makes these following two statements. First, he says, I fear God. That's a bizarre thing for an Egyptian to say. This is not an ambiguous, I fear a God. He is referencing the God the God of the the Hebrew people. And he declares, I fear your God. In Egypt, they had a pantheon filled with gods. Many, many dozens, if not hundreds of, of gods that they worshiped. Yet he says, I fear God. And so he says, you must not fear me because I fear God. I will do what I say. Nobody who fears God will harm an innocent man. That is the subtext. Do you see what he's getting at here? This is an indictment against Judah and his brothers. I will not hurt this innocent man, for I fear God. Likewise, he is saying to them, you are people who do not fear God, which is why you harmed an innocent man, your brother. So without saying a word about himself, he is getting to the point by prodding them and poking them and showing them that they themselves have no fear of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 8, lists 15 charges against every unbeliever. Each one is like a punch to the diaphragm as it describes just how far we are in our fallen state. And the final knockout punch in the list is in verse 18. And it simply says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is an explanation of why we do what we do before we come to Christ. We imagine that God either doesn't exist, or if he does exist, he's either too ignorant or too impotent to see what I'm doing and to respond. 
Joseph was using this phrase to prick the heart of Judah and his brothers to reveal, you must see, you do not fear God. There is no fear of God before your eyes. Secondly, he adds this parenthetical statement. He says, if you are honest men, if you are honest men, maintaining a lie is serious work. Maintaining a lie requires that you consistently keep up falsehoods for the remainder of your life. When you lie about something, you are manipulating history by attempting to bend it to your desired reality. You are doing your best to prop up yourself as the hero by intentionally altering the facts. You lie. You lie to look good. You lie to avoid punishment. You lie to get ahead. Just like David says in Psalm 51, we come forth from the womb speaking lies. We bluff, we exaggerate, we falsify, we fabricate, we fib, we deceive, we mislead, we pretend, we lie. Whatever you may call it, lying requires the intentional suppression of reality, and that is a great weight on the soul. It's something where you must bear that in yourself, always remembering to keep up this falsehood and this appearance. I wonder if Judah ever told his wife about what he had done with Joseph. I wonder if he had ever told his best friend Hira what had taken place. I wonder if he had nightmares about Joseph screaming as they put him in chains as he was being sold and carried away. But in order to maintain the lie, he had to go on in silence, not admitting what had taken place. I wonder if Jacob built a grave marker or a tomb for Joseph's non-existent body. I wonder if they took that shredded coat and laid it in a place and then put a marker over it that they would go visit maybe on a birthday or an important family days. And I wonder if the family members walked to that location and felt the guilt of that each time they saw their father break down and weep over his, the one he thought was a deceased son. In all of these and many more occasions, Judah and his brothers had all the opportunity in the world to confess and to come clean. But instead, they maintain the lie. Joseph says, if you are honest men, once again, he is using these words to show them you are not godly. You must be transformed. You must change. You must repent. You can see the guilt that they are all feeling because the next words out of the brothers' mouths are found in verses 21 and 22. It says, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them and said, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Guilt is something that believers and unbelievers alike experience. The grief of knowing that you are wicked is a heavy weight to bear. But there are two kinds of grief that come from guilt. We read about these two distinct forms of grief in 2 Corinthians 7:10 when it says, "For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret." Whereas worldly grief produces death. At this moment, they are feeling that worldly grief. They are feeling this weight of sin. And perhaps you can recognize that. You have felt the burden of knowing that you are an enemy of God, or at least you have felt the burden of knowing that you are an enemy of other people because of your wickedness. Yet here, we see that they don't go home and tell their father what's happened. They don't go home and they don't confess. 
They don't go home and attempt to make things right. We're going to watch how Judah is now on the path to godly grief. This entire process has been working on him, and the following tests eventually break him down completely. Joseph continued to test the brothers by making it more difficult for them to return by then putting the money back into their sacks. Jacob is fearful of losing Benjamin, and he does not want his boys to be imprisoned by that powerful ruler that he can only imagine down there in Egypt. So what does he do? Jacob refuses to allow them to go back until they know they are going to starve to death if nobody goes. He waits until the last possible minute where their storerooms are running dry. And even then... Even then, Judah had to coax his father to allow him to return. At this point, notice the change that we see beginning to take place in Judah. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will, I will be a pledge of his safety. I will be a pledge of of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Judah is on his way to repentance, but notice that he is speaking to the same father who thinks that Joseph was consumed by a wild animal. He is still not willing to confess his sin and seek forgiveness and restoration. When the brothers then arrived back in Egypt, they were welcomed and a feast was prepared by Joseph and he lined them up at the table by their birth ages. Now, this might not seem that crazy because most of the time when we have kids, they're separated by enough that you can kind of see that there's a distinction. But then wait until they're all in their 30s or at least their 20s, uh, 20s up until some of the older ones may have been in their young 40s at this point. But consider that there are four birth mothers present here. And some of these kids were born relatively the same time. And to be able to look at these guys who have different mothers and different appearances and just say, you are the oldest and then you and then you and then you and then you, that is wild. To be able to get it right is very bizarre. And so even the brothers are looking at this and thinking, how does he know? How can he be sure which one of us is which? And they have this feast and they're celebrating. And then we see that there is another test as Benjamin is honored at this meal. There was this test whereby they singled out the youngest to give him the greatest honor. They brought four times the amount of food. Now to us, that might not sound like a big deal. But to them, that was what you would do for a king. The king's meal was the one that was supposed to be four times as large as everyone else's. Even if they only ate one grape off the plate, everything else was supposed to show, this is the one who is to be honored above all the rest. And so Benjamin is honored. Do you remember the last time the young brother was honored over the rest? It was Joseph when he was singled out to receive that special coat. And the brothers were filled with what? fury and jealousy and hatred. But when we read about Benjamin being honored more than they were, their response we see is quite different. God is making a change in them. Genesis 43 uh, verse 40, um, sorry, 34 says, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was, I'm sorry, not four times larger, five times larger as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Now, it seems as though God has been working for 22 years to soften them because of what we see take place next. They are not angry. They are not bitter. But here it says, instead, they rejoice with their brother. 
They rejoice with Benjamin. They celebrate. They make merry with him. Then we come now to the final test in chapter 44. This is the big one. This is the emotional center of the book for the brothers. The brothers buy more food and they pack their bags and they go home to their father. But Joseph's silver cup was secretly placed into Benjamin's bag. Joseph sent an emissary to then accuse the brothers of stealing. Why would you do this to us? And then we see their response in verses 9 through 13. They say, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. Now, notice, the guy does not ever say, we want anyone to die. Joseph had never declared that any of them should be put to death. Rather, he doesn't even threaten them with that. Rather, they put that penalty on themselves. They declare, whoever has done this thing is worthy of death. And then he said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it, not shall die, but shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be found innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, and beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. This was it. This was their chance to get rid of Benjamin. He had been his father's favorite since Joseph was sold into slavery 22 years earlier. They could have easily left Benjamin there as a slave and returned to their father empty-handed. But instead, the brothers all tore their clothes and then they returned to Egypt. Now, we might not think a lot about this tearing clothes because if you, if you want, you just go to Old Navy and buy a new shirt. It's not a big deal, right? But for them, this is a big deal. Consider the fact that most people in these days only had two outer garments if they were wealthy. Poor people did not have a lot of clothes, and these people did not have a lot of clothes. And if you were to tear one, it was a sign that you are in great distress of soul. They tear their clothes. And what do they do? Instead of traveling north back to their homeland, they turn and go the opposite direction. I think this is an intentional picture of showing that there is a change also internally in their heart. This was their chance to be rid of Benjamin. Yet instead, they were distraught and they were concerned because we seem to see that they actually love their father now and they love their brother. And now comes the point of full repentance in the life of Judah. We see him first recount what has happened in the story so far. And notice what he says in chapter 44, verse 14 and following. He says, it says, When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. There is a pleading that is taking place in his heart. He knows that there is a desperate situation. This is the, the picture of what we do when we repent. We likewise fall at the feet of Jesus. And here it says, Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Joseph continuing to keep up the facade here. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What can we say? What can I say to you? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. God has found out our guilt. Brothers and sisters, this is what happens to every one of our own hearts when we begin to actually genuinely repent for the first time. We realize God has seen me. God knows me. God has found out my guilt. God has found out what I have done. Those things that I thought I had covered up, God knows them. He is aware of every last word and thought and deed. He knows me. And we fall on the ground and we plead because we have nothing to say. 
You can't bargain with God. You've got nothing that he wants. You cannot buy your way into his favor. You've got nothing that you can barter with. You have no bargaining chip with the king of the universe. All you can say is this, fall at his feet and plead. And then continue on. We see this full repentance continuing. Jump down uh, to verse 30. It says, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. If I go back without this boy, my dad's going to die. If I go back there without him, my father is going to die. And he's showing now that instead of the hatred and rejection that we see of his father, at the beginning of chapter 38, when he leaves him behind and wants nothing to do with him, now there's genuine love in his heart. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy, as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart. It means turning and going the opposite direction. Judah has now transitioned from being a money-hungry, heartless, self-indulgent, narcissistic monster to being a humble, self-sacrificial, loving brother and son. This is a picture of everyone who truly comes to the Lord in faith. But we are not standing before Joseph. We're not standing before some ruler of Egypt. We are standing before the king of the universe, Jesus himself. And at all times, we are in his sight. He sees us and he knows what we have done. And yet, even though he knows us and knows the depths of our wickedness even more than we do, yet he calls us lovingly to repentance. Jesus was once speaking to a group of Jewish people who were asking a couple of questions about tragedies that had happened near them. And his response to them was this. He says in Luke 13, 7, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Had Judah not repented, do you see that it would have meant his own destruction? For him, when he came and bowed himself before Joseph, and when he said, keep me and not Benjamin, it looked like he was losing. It looked like death to him. It looked like the worst possible road, but it was the right one, and he knew it. It would have been much easier for him to travel back to Canaan, to avoid his father's house, and just go back to hire the Adolamite, his friend, and just continued on living and forgetting all of this that ever happened. And if he needed to, come back and just grab some grain every time he needs to in, in Egypt. It would have been easier for him. He might have even gone back and become the heir apparent of the family now that Benjamin is out of the picture. He is indeed the next one in line biologically. So, what does he do? He rejects the thing that he thinks will get him the better result. And he does what he knows is right. And he falls at the feet of the king and he repents. He falls at the feet of the king and says, take me instead. We don't like talking about our sins. We don't like confessing. We don't like those things that have been under the rug to come out and be seen in public. We don't like airing our dirty laundry. But we see Judah's repentance is a risky repentance. It could have cost him his very life. He could have remained a slave forever in Egypt. Yet our repentance is likewise quite costly. When we come to Christ, 
we do give up everything. We give up every one of our passions of our old life as we commit to being a servant of Jesus for the rest of his days. I will be your servant. I will do what you ask me to do. I will honor you. I will follow you. I will obey you. Now, I want you to remember this is the second of a two-part series. If I only preached these things to you, if that's all this message was about today, it would ultimately be true, but the, the bulk of it would be a legalistic statement of, you just do this. The only reason that Judah had a chance to repent is because Joseph was a gracious, loving king. He could have had his brothers executed that moment he first saw them riding those donkeys into Egypt. See those guys out there? Don't even let them cross the gate. Get out there and shoot them with arrows or whatever. Likewise, God could strike down every unbeliever in the world right now. He could kill everyone who does not call on his name. He could, he could kill all of us before we came to Christ. He could have done that. He could even kill us the moment that we sin as believers and make ourselves hypocrites. The moment that we reject him, even though that we have placed our faith in him and are following him, that moment that we say that thing or do that thing or think that thing that we're not supposed to, he could indeed strike us dead. He's a righteous judge. He could do that. But he's merciful, and God is long-suffering. And God is doing a work in our lives to break us down. The result is that we might look more like Christ. Judah looks much more like he's supposed to at the end of the story. And your story is an ongoing story where God is using the things around you to break you and bring you to a point of repentance. It's no coincidence that most of the testimonies of salvation that you hear begin with a person saying something like, I was at rock bottom and Jesus came and saved me. I was at the lowest point in my life. God has stripped away every comfort after every comfort in order to bring me to the end of myself. And then I believed and I was saved. In just two weeks, we're going to hear testimonies as we gather together at Long Beach of several people who are going to be baptized. And at that time, I want you to listen for this very truth, that God uses circumstance after trial, after frustration, after hardship, in order to lead us to repentance. Final word now. You may be asking, what about those of us who have been saved? What about us who are Christians? You're, you're talking about those of us who need to come to Christ in repentance. What about those of us who are already trusting in Jesus? And the answer is, you must also repent. Repentance is not a one-time act of those people who are unbelievers turning to Christ in faith for the first time, although that is necessary, and that is the beginning of all of our walk with Christ. But as long as we continue sinning, as long as we continue on acting as though we belong to the world and living like the world, we must vigilantly fight that battle of sanctification. And I want to point you as believers to two ways to fight that battle this morning. First, 1 John is the book that more clearly than any other reminds us that we as believers are still sinners, and it tells us exactly what we must do about that. It teaches us, 1 John teaches us how to fight that battle. And in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which is written to believers, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that when we come to Christ in salvation, we are justified, and all of our sin, past, present, and future, all of that is wiped away, and our future sins are covered by the blood of Christ at our salvation. Yet, 1 John makes it clear that ongoing sin means we must also have ongoing confession and ongoing repentance. And in doing so, we are promised that the grace of God will continue to cleanse and to purify us from unrighteousness. So confess as broadly as you have sinned, and don't be like Judah, attempting to cover it up. 
And secondly, remember that repentance is a gift of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. If your heart is currently in love with some sin, you're just looking at your life and saying, I just don't want to get rid of that. I just want to hold on to this one thing. This is, this is just the last thing that I've got, and I want to keep it. First of all, it's not. You have a lot more sin that you need to chip away. But secondly, it's not worth it, and it's not something you are supposed to be holding on to. You are now a servant of Christ, a slave of righteousness. So if your heart is in love with one sin or another, and you are holding on to it with a death grip, then call out to God and ask him, Lord, please change my heart. That person that I don't love... Help me love them. That person that I can't stand to be around, give me patience with them. That thing that I just keep putting in my life as an idol, help me fall out of love with that thing and in love with Jesus. Whatever it might be, ask God to break you of that desire, and he will. Ask God to break you of that sin, because that repentance that you are seeking must come from God doing a work in your heart. So pray, call out to God that he will indeed transform you. Perhaps you could pray the end of Psalm 19 over your life. It says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I am so thankful that we have a loving God who leads us to repentance. Joseph, he was gracious with Judah. And he led Judah to a point of being completely broken. Through hardship and trials and all sorts of circumstances, he was able to reveal to Judah his own heart and his wickedness. And Judah's response was humbly to repent. I pray that we would have a similar response. For those who are unbelievers, if you want to know Christ, if you've never trusted in him before today, please don't leave without talking to me or one of the elders about this. We want you to be saved and repent for that very first time. But brothers and sisters who know Jesus who have repented years ago, who have been following Jesus for a decade or decades, trust in Christ and continue on in faithfully repenting of your sin. I'm so thankful that we have a king who is gracious to forgive us each time we come. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you that this depiction of Joseph is just a small picture, a fragment of what we see to be true in Christ, who loved us and died in our place. Lord, we thank you that we have the ability to be able to be clean. We can be purified. We can have our sins completely washed away. And not only because of Christ. We ask, Father, that today we would be people who are living lives of holiness because we have cast our sin on you. And thank you, Lord, that if we repent and cast our sins in your direction, we know that you take them and throw them into the depths of the sea that they are farther than the east is from the west, that you remember them no more. God, I pray that you would cause us to be people who are constantly vigilant to fight the battle of sanctification. Please, God, let us know that we are not fighting this fight alone, but that your spirit who lives within us is the one who is wielding all of the armor of God in our lives. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to fight these battles faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.